0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Here with a good friend Vox Day, a multiple-time Hugo Award nominee and writer of epic fantasy, as well as the author of the must-read books Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, and... Conservatives, how, how conservatives betrayed America. Vox is also a professional game designer and was, in fact, the original model for the guy with the monocle on uh, Monopoly. Maintains a pair also of popular blogs, Vox, Populi, and Alpha Game, and runs Castilia House Publishing. We'll put the links to all of his webby vital statistics below. Vox, how are you doing?
1: Thanks, good to be back.
0: So, Vox, you may have heard the term alt-right. Maybe it's new to you, but it seems to be floating around the um, the um planet, uh, like Superman attempted to turn back time, I think. And uh, I know that there's no official dude or dude-ass uh, for the movement, and I um, find it a little confusing. So uh, as sort of the outsider with his face up against the biosphere, uh, perhaps you can step us through the term as far as you uh, understand it, what it means, what's motivating it, and where its direction could be going.
1: Well, it's difficult to say who the leader or leaders of the alt-right are because uh, we're seeing all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, the, the funniest thing I've seen so far was National Public Radio declaring that uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Alan Bukhari, both of Breitbart, are the leaders of the alt-right. Um, the funny thing about that was they linked to an article which which was written by the two of them, both of them expressly stating that they are not alt right; they're merely sympathetic and covering it fairly. Um, so anyhow, I've been having a good time uh, hassling Alum by uh, constantly referring people to him. I, I think he's appreciated that. But um, actually, the the I mean, you know, the people that uh, people tend to look at are Richard Spencer, uh, who is the head of the National Policy Institute. And uh, also some guys like Ramsey Paul. Uh, some people even look at Mencius Moldbug and Nick Land, but you know they're really much—they're really more nail reactionaries uh, than than alt-right proper. Um, and uh, you know some folks have even looked at me. Uh, I think probably because Milo called me an alt-right figurehead a few months ago. Uh, but what the altern- what the alt-right is, is it's the alternative right. It's the alternative to the conservative media that has been essentially speaking for the right wing for the past 25, 30 years, really since the, the rise of Reagan. Um, you know, and, and even before that, with um, you know, National Review, what, what you would call the, the Buckleyite crew. Um, and what, what the alt-right is, at its core, is we are the descendants of those who were read out of the conservative movement. So we are the intellectual descendants of the uh, John Birch Society, of Sam Francis, of Pat Buchanan, of uh, you know everyone from John Derbyshire to Ann Coulter, who have been consistently read out of the conservative movement, mostly f- be due to a unwillingness to defer to the conservative movement's attempt to ingratiate itself with. Um, you know, the industrial military complex and the neoconservatives and uh, the Bush administration.
0: There was a, there's been a lot of branches and forks in conservatism. And, you know, it's, it would be an entire show to go over all of the different kinds. But one that seemed very important to me was the, the Barry Goldwater uh, split uh, in the in the 60s. Goldwater, um, if you read, uh, I think it's the um, uh, his books on, on conservatism, very small government guy, not quite objectivist, but not even that far from that particular mindset, blown right out of the water uh, uh, in the uh, conservative movement, out of this desire, I think to, uh, be conciliatory towards the left, because I think a lot of people on the right say, well, the left is in control of the media, and I really need positive media coverage in order to have a successful political career, so I better count out to some of the left's tropes in order to survive. And then, uh, there was, of course, a bit of a Reagan branch, uh, Reagan, uh, coming from, uh, California, where he had, uh, um, been for no fault divorce and other stuff that the, um, Uh, the writers had some problems with. And even Reagan did later on in his career think that that was not a great move. But of course, his sort of magnificent stare down of the Soviet Union in the 80s, uh, I think was was very important. And then it seemed like the neocons, uh, sort of uh, late mid to late 80s, really flowed in. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that as the Cold War was winding down, you kind of needed a way to justify the military industrial complex. And the neocons with a very aggressive foreign policy seem to have stepped into that void caused by the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, that's, I think, where you got a lot of the um, the, the bushes and, and all of that kind of stuff. And um, it seems that The uh, right has been playing a bit of a losing game by inches with the left. The left is kind of getting most of what it wants, maybe just a little slower because of the right. But there's not been a fundamental counterinsurgency against the expansion of the left. Um, What do you think of that? I mean, obviously, very fast drive by skim of uh, what's been going on.
1: Uh, It's mostly accurate. Uh, The only thing that that was at all incorrect was that Goldwater was always within the the mainstream of the overall conservative movement um that the alt right is not part of um goldwater represented the the right side of that um versus the the left rockefeller side um and and interestingly enough uh romney his uh, his fa- Mitt romney's father was was part of the rockefeller side which is of course why romney was always um doubted by the by the the true conservatives but the, the, overall, though, it, uh, what your summary was, was correct. And the thing that people don't understand is that the, the fundamental problem with the conservative movement goes back to its beginning. And it really helps to look at a guy named Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk is generally considered to be the father of the modern conservative movement. You know, there's been a conservative party in England... Much longer than there's been a conservative movement in the United States, and the two are entirely separate. They have they have no connection other than um, the American conservatives occasionally look back to uh, Edmund Burke and that sort of thing. But, um, but if you read a, a consci- the consci- or a conscience of a conservative, or the conscience of a conservative, or just look up the ten uh, conservative principles that Russell Kirk laid out, what you'll see is that. Ah, uh, conservatism in America, the modern conservative movement, is not an ideology. It, he even comes right out and says it. It's not an ideology. um it is fundamentally a attitude. And then that's the core problem. It's something that uh, my my co-author and I, John Red Eagle, we addressed this in in our book, uh, Conservative, which was a, a a bestseller last year and deals quite heavily on. Actually, the subtitle is is how conservatives betrayed America, and what we were really surprised to discover as we were looking into the history of conservatism in America, is that, uh, this lack of ideology is the reason that conservatism has continually moved left. It's the reason that conservatism has conserved nothing. You know, the 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 damning thing that that the conservatives are totally unable to. Uh, defend is the fact that not only did they not conserve the American nation, they simply did not even conserve women's bathrooms. You know, if if you can't even keep, you know, men in dresses out of little girls' bathrooms, you know, you you really can't call yourself a conservative. You've conserved nothing. And so, what? and, and that's the big difference between the alt right and the the conservative movement, is that the alt right has and ideology. The alt-right is developing um, a philosophy. The alt-right, and and the big difference is that um, even though they didn't have an ideology, uh, a specific coherent ideology, they do have a ideological approach to the world. The alt-right does not. The alt-right takes an identity politics approach to the world, which of course, as you well know, is the approach that 95 percent of the world takes Um, you know in malaysia or in uh, nigeria or in russia the the parties are not really separated by ideology they're usually separated by identity and that's what we're now seeing in the united states as the uh, the white american majority becomes a, a minority it is beginning to evolve into identity politics the same way that the blacks do, the same way La Raza does, the same way that the Jews do. You know, it, it's um, white Americans are beginning to learn that they have to play the game just like everybody else.
0: Well, and the degree to which America was, uh, I think Ann Coulter has pointed this out, a, a sort of white uh christian and, and particularly wasp like a protestant nation for most of its history and that that was well understood in its founding and the degree to which that has diminished really since the 65 kennedy um uh, immigration alterations uh, changes where basically uh, europeans were rejected in favor of uh, a third world or, or other culture kind of immigrants that is um Something that's, I guess, easy to take for granted until it's no longer the case, and then almost with regret, I think uh, some white people are looking and saying, "Well, you know, it's not my particular um, first impulse." However, if everybody else is playing identity in group preference politics, what what is our future if we don't uh, try to play that game at all?
1: Yeah, the, they have no choice. It's not a it's not a question of deciding that, uh, you know, while we'd prefer to continue to play with these rules, I mean, the the mainstream movement conservatives are still trying to make that pitch. But it's falling on deaf ears because nobody buys it anymore. And, uh, you know, the, the problem that most white Americans have and that most conservatives have is that they were sold a myth. You know, they were sold the myth of the melting pot They were sold the myth of the nation of immigrants. They were sold the myth of a proposition nation. Uh, They were also sold the myth of a Judeo-Christian nation. All of those things are lies. All of those things are either uh, late 19th century or middle 19th century or early 20th century concepts that have been sold and, and propagandized to the United people in the United States, so that they would believe that America was not a white nation, that America was not a Christian nation. But it's it's completely bogus, and all of your listeners can verify this for themselves. Go to in, go to Google Engram, and type in a nation of immigrants. You know, go to go to uh, Google Engram and type in uh, Judeo Christian, and what you'll see is that those words were not even in use. At the time of the founding of of the united states in fact most of them were not in use within 120 years of it and so uh you know then you look at things like the uh, naturalization acts of 1790 and 1795 and you can see that for the first 120 years to be an american meant to be white you know um some of my ancestors you know on the, the i mean obviously the mexican ancestors were not but um you know, my American Indian ancestors were not considered Americans because it, it specifically excluded American Indians. Um, you had various things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, an actual law saying that Chinese people could not be United States citizens. And, and then, of course, they had the, the whole uh, slavery issue, which was a, a, a special issue, um, that there were various laws dealing with. But, but the, the very clear historical fact of the matter is that all of those uh inventions about America being a nation of immigrants and a melting pot and that sort of thing those those were all concocted much later in order to um make the the second wave immigrants which was mostly the uh Italians the um the Italians the Irish and the Jews to make them feel like they were you know, real and proper Americans, just as American as anyone else, but it wasn't true, and uh, you know, the, it's a self-serving immigrant myth.
0: Now, the idea that may be startling to people is the idea that um, it's important whether you're white or not, and there is the general idea that America is a set of beliefs, and if you come to America from wherever, whatever ethnicity, whatever region, and you accept or become uh, part of those beliefs, you believe in the republic, uh, you believe in democracy, you believe in separation of church and state, you believe in freedom of the press, you believe, whatever, I mean, all, all of the aggregations of the American experiment, that the nationality or the race in particular is not as important as the belief uh, systems, and that to co-join belief systems with a race uh, does strike people as uh, alarmingly collectivist. I wonder if you could sort of respond to that concern.
1: Well, the first and obvious rejoinder is that the idea is provably and observably untrue. Um, if it were necessary to hold to those propositions in order to be a citizen, then there would have to be a way of delineating or you know, um, discerning who was adhering to those propositions and who didn't. But there's no test for it. There's no need to believe any of it. You, know, you can become an American citizen without speaking English. You can become a, a U.S. citizen without uh, believing in democracy. You, know, you can become an Amer- a U.S. citizen uh, and fully subscribe to Sharia and you know, believe that Islam should, should rule with a black flag over Washington, D.C. And nothing is going to nothing is going to get in the way of that and so uh the idea that um it's necessary to adhere to these things that these ideas are what make you an american is totally and utterly false both historically as well as logically
0: so then if i understand this correctly the the, the test was do you come from a region or perhaps a race that as you've pointed out, the sort of three foundational pillars, Christianity, a European nation, and the Greco-Roman legacy. Um, and of course, it's not likely that if you're from Somalia, that's going to be part of your um, cultural makeup or your identity. So if you did want people who are more compatible with the ideals of America, you would want to bring your immigrants in who are Christians from European nations, which would, I guess, automatically be part of the uh, Greco-Roman legacy. Is that a fair way to put it?
1: I think that you can put it even more stringently than that. Um, you know, it's, it's rather shocking to people when, when I first point this out, but uh, even the, f- uh, the early waves of immigration fundamentally and intrinsically changed the United States and changed it in a negative way that was definitely in a direction away from the founders' intentions for the very simple reason that the Germans, the Scandinavians the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews have never, ever understood the English common law. They have no uh, historical understanding of small government, and they have no particular affection for it. And you know this is very visible when you grow up in Minnesota, as I did, because you know, just the, the, the German and Scandinavian nature of the people there is is very very big government. It's very different than um, my you know Yankee relatives in Massachusetts, where they're they're all of English descent and they tend to have uh, a much more uh, distrustful attitude towards government. And and it's very shocking to people to realize that uh, these patterns are so reliable, and yet they are. And that's why it was important to the founders they understood this if you know most people haven't read many of the writings of benjamin franklin or thomas jefferson or alexander hamilton but all of these issues that we're discussing were issues that were of concern to them at the time uh, ben franklin in particular was very concerned about the heavily germanic aspect of pennsylvania you know he was he was wondering if it would even be possible for for pennsylvania to you know, properly integrate with uh, some of the English-speaking um, states,
0: and and sorry, just by the by, there are places, as far as I understand it, in that region where they still speak German.
1: That's true, and in fact, until uh, after World War One, um, there were there was much more German spoken. It, it wasn't until World War One when uh, you know speaking German and German culture really kind of fell out of style that. Um, that English became the, the dominant language. That you know, the the completely dominant language that it became until until Sp- until Spanish entered the picture. But um, but the important thing to understand is that uh, these issues are not new. These issues um, were discussed. These issues were established. Decisions were made, um, and all of them are very very clear. And all of them are very very different. Than what most people understand today, simply because most people today are very, very badly educated on these these matters. And frankly, a lot of the stuff that that I learned in researching Cuxervative, or I should say, that John Red Eagle learned in researching conservative, that he then explained to me, um, <laughs> that would probably be more fair. Um, you know, a lot of it was relatively new to me because you know I I swallowed the whole melting pot thing. I I was shocked to find out that. Uh, you know, the melting pot was actually um, popularized, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally conceived and popularized by Israel Zangwell, who was a Russian Jew living in Britain. I mean, it had nothing to do with the United States. It was basically a a play about the United States from somebody who didn't really know very much about it. You know, and here we've uh, adopted it as if it's what um, Steve Saylor calls the zeroth amendment, you know, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the founding father Emma Lazarus you know, carved it on the the bottom of the Statue of Liberty in 1776. I mean, it's 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 a historical absurdity, and yet um, we act like it's more important than the Constitution or you know than any of the the um, early acts of the early Congresses.
0: And there is a strange disconnect. Which is that there are resolutions that come out of uh, the American government and the platforms of various political parties that will continue to avow their desire and their getting behind the idea that uh, Israel should remain a Jewish state. Israel should remain a Jewish state. Right. And yet if there was a platform that said that America should remain a Christian state, uh, that would be considered, well abhorrent uh, and, and shocking and, and and some kind of ist that he can't, can't even imagine how many n-dimensional ists you would get uh, spiking out of that particular approach. And so it is odd that uh, a particular cultural or, or racial or religious uh, heritage is affirmed for Israel by a lot of sections of the U.S. government, and yet not for America itself.
1: Well, it's not just the government Um What's really driving it is the media, both the mainstream media and the conservative media. In fact, I'm pretty sure you, you've noticed in the last week, there was a tremendous number of attacks on the alt-right by uh, members of the conservative media who have parentheses around their names when they show up when, when we write about them on Twitter. You know, um, I got attacked by Ben Shapiro, who is Jewish. Kathy Young, who is Jewish, Andrew Claven, who is Jewish, um, and it was it was kind of interesting because uh, you know they didn't dare to even try to call him, uh, call me anti-Semitic because I also happen to publish uh, Israel's leading military historian. Um, but the reason for it is that uh, what the alt right is doing is pointing out that that myth. Of the melting pot means that uh, the whole idea uh, that that America is nothing, which is essentially what they're saying. They're trying to say America is nothing. It's just an idea. Anyone can be an American. It doesn't matter if you're a pygmy living in Africa or if you're an Eskimo you know, born at the North Pole. You're just as American as anyone else. And frankly, that is that is absolutely abhorrent because what it's saying is that America's historical people and America's historical culture does not exist. And that's simply uh, simply not true.
0: And it would be the equivalent of anybody sort of waltzing into uh, Israel and saying, I think I'm Jewish, and then saying, sure. Whereas the process of converting to Judaism can be, what, a multi-year, close to a decade-long process of cross-examination and understanding and study and research and acceptance, I guess, um, what Donald Trump's daughter went through it, uh, as did, I think... Elizabeth Taylor? Anyway, uh, it's a big, complicated process to convert to Judaism, yet it seems like uh, uh, the the Western uh, experiment, the Western experience, is something that you can, what, shuffle up, hold up your hand, say a couple of words, and boom, you're there.
1: Well, it's even worse than that, because even if you are 100% genetically Jewish, and you can prove it with a a blood test, um, if you happen to be a Christian— they will not let you they will not grant you the right of return, and so um it, you know it's it's not even a pure ethno state it's a it's a ethno religious state um whereas i mean, can you imagine if uh the United States passed a law saying that you have to be um a white anglo saxon uh who belongs to the Church of England um or you can't you can't uh, be resident or become a citizen in the USA. I mean, people would be screaming theocracy and Nazi from, you know, it would burst our eardrums. Um, and, but, the, but the point isn't, isn't that um, there's anything wrong with what Israel's doing in that regard. What Israel's doing is absolutely right. And what Israel's doing is what most states around the world do. The problem with the United States and the unique uh, issue that the United States is facing um, is that it is one of the only states where the citizens do not understand that state and nation are two completely different things. A state is a a political entity. You know, anyone can move into the United States, become a United States citizen, and you can do the same thing in many many other countries you know but if if you were to move to italy and if you were to get uh your italian citizenship you would still not be an italian you know i mean i speak italian um my my kids speak fluent italian all that sort of thing but neither we nor anyone considers us anything but stranieri you know it literally means strangers um now, it doesn't mean that, that we're not welcome, it doesn't mean that we 're not treated very well, all that sort of thing, but on a fundamental level, we never will be Italian, and that's okay. it's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, it's also very, It's very strange sometimes talking to Americans about it because you know, they'll talk about their neighbors from El Salvador or Sweden or whatever you know who have been there for four or five years and and they're real Americans now. And then I'll say, well, you know, do you consider me an American? They'll say, well, of of course, you know, you're totally American. I haven't been there in 20 years. (laughs) You know, know, I I mean, how is it possible that you can become a a real true American as American as anyone else in five years? But, uh, if you, you go to Italy for 20 years or Sweden for 25 years, you know, you're not Italian, you're not Sweden, you're not Swedish. Um, and so that that's so the 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 whole thing is based on this confusion of nation and state but a nation is nothing more than a people it is a group of people that share a common uh, genetics a common language a common culture and and that sort of thing um and you know the fact that um the the fact that american uh, the american nation is not as as old, has not been around as long, does not mean that it is any less distinct. Right.
0: People also who are in the West um, sort of lose track, and, unless they're reminded and then it kind of all comes flooding back. I think they lose track of how many nations are ethnostates around the world. And I mean, the the most common examples, of course, are uh, the Asian uh, nations, I think it's sort of South Korea and, and China and Japan and, and other places like that, where racial homo- homogeneity is almost complete. I mean, it's, it's like 99 or 99.5% uh, the same uh, stock, I guess you could say. And uh, it's hard to miss that they don't seem to have a lot of the conflicts that Western countries do, that their economic growth tends to be uh, higher, that their welfare expenditures tend to be lower, uh, that social cohesion and cohesiveness tend to be higher. And, of course, they live... Uh, in which, you know, for a lot of people might be a kind of conceptual paradise. They live in a society where the word racism is virtually unheard of. That, that they, because they're all the same race in general, they don't ever have to sort of say, well, I better not put my foot wrong or say something wrong or, you know, raise my eyebrow at the wrong time for fear of the giant media scud missile of racist landing down on my head. And, um, I think that's a, uh, <sighs> that's something that I think could be considered a little tempting for some people.
1: Well, it was interesting to see how when I laid out the 16 principles of the Alt Right, which is just my thinking on the subject, you know, a number of people have said, you know, what is the Alt Right? You know, we need we don't understand what it is. And so, speaking only for myself, I said, okay, you know, this is this is what I think. Um and you know, Richard Spencer was kind enough to say that he thought it was very solid. Um a number of other uh, Alt Right uh, figures and and so forth um, you know indicated uh, general agreement as well and and so it 's not definitive, but I think it's informative and one of the points that I noted was that the alt right is opposed to any non native ethnic minority um, wielding inordinate uh, influence or domination over the Native ethnic majority, and that was something that really triggered uh, a couple of the uh, aforementioned conservative comment, uh, commentators that I mentioned, um, because of course they started you know shrieking Holocaust and everything, um, but it really didn't have that much to do with them. I mean, obviously it, it has; uh, it, it's, it's possibly relevant in the United States, or it is relevant in the United States, but it's a problem that exists all over the world. I mean, it's a problem that existed in Sri Lanka with the Tamils. It's a problem that exists in Malaysia and Indonesia with the, uh, the Han Chinese. Um, it, it was even, a, um, a problem in, uh, in parts of Africa with different African tribes that somehow became politically dominant, um, despite being a much smaller tribe. I believe that, um, the situation in Rwanda uh, had was was the consequence of, of one of those situations, and you know this isn't something that you know I just made up. Uh, you know this is something that uh, Thomas Sowell, you know the, the noted uh, racist um, <laughs> black professor from Stanford, uh, you know he wrote a whole book about it, and uh, then Amy Chua, who I believe is a, a Chinese professor at uh, Yale. Uh, she recently wrote another book about the same topic, dealing with the same subject. And, you know, we we all know the the equation uh, diversity plus proximity equals war. But uh, apparently one of the best ways to generate uh, serious and problematic ethnic conflict is to uh, take a heavily, you know, take a small ethnic minority and allow them to take political power or amass inordinate economic power uh, because, generally speaking, history indicates that the native majority does not take that well and eventually wants to do something about it, you know, whether you're talking about what happened in, in India when they, when they wanted to get the British out um, or what happened you know, in, in places like Rwanda or you know, potentially even in Nazi Germany. And
0: there are examples. Uh, One pops to mind that there was a group of uh, Germans, largely bureaucrats, who were invited over by the Tsars in the 19th century, went over to uh, Russia and remained non Russian speakers. They had translators and and they worked as uh, bureaucrats and they worked in other occupations, I think, for about a hundred years. And they had made no attempt or success in sort of blending into the general Russian uh, way of life. And then, of course, uh, as soon as uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, popped up his uh, ferret bald head, uh, then, and, and went for power in 1917. Then all of these Germans flowed all the way back to Germany and, and, and was still speaking the same language. There is a kind of, um, uh, a bubble. You know, we, we are a tribal species, uh, and there's an efficiency to tribalism that I think is really under estimated in terms of of how well it can work economically when you uh, grow like when i meet people from england or i meet people from other sort of walks of life where i've had some considerable cultural experience Easy peasy. I know pretty much the jokes I can make. I know the general formula for uh, social interaction uh, and all that. Particularly, you know, something as, as eccentric as the British sense of humor uh, can be off-putting for some people. But of course, if I grew up at least until the age of 11 or so uh, in England and have consumed a lot of British media over the time... And so there's a kind of efficiency to it. And you get into business. You kind of know what is expected. Uh, handshake is as good as a bond and all that. Whereas if your neighbor is J- Japanese and doesn't speak English, it's complicated to borrow some sugar. It's complicated to know... um what, uh, you know, what are the rituals, what are, you know, when you even when you go into their house, what is expected, that stuff can be kind of complicated. And some people like it, and they want to go and learn these things. And I always find that multiculturalism is something that is considered to be a much greater benefit when you're young. And I understand that, you know, you multiculturalism, you got great music, you got great food, different experiences and exotic uh, people and all of that. But you know, when you get older, and you're trying to raise your kids, exposing them to a wide variety of sometimes incompatible belief systems, I think is just kind of disorienting. And and they don't grow up in a neighborhood where they know, well, they have to learn a wide variety of cultures as other people have to learn a wide variety of cultures. And sometimes that's fun. And sometimes that just seems a little wearying. And I think there have been some studies that have shown that this uh, increasing diversity uh, in, in neighborhoods is one of the reasons why people stay home, why they cocoon, why they watch TV rather than go outside, because it's just really complicated to organize a barbecue when everybody's eating different things and has a different uh, language and a different time of eating, perhaps just whatever culture they're coming from. They may even sit at a table in a different way. It's just, you know, maybe it's fun once or twice, but it just seems like uh, pulling a big rock uphill, I think, after a while for a lot of people.
1: Well, you know, you can't be a, a trilingual expat family without being aware of those things. Um, you know, I think it's easy for uh, Americans living in a historical monoculture to be attracted to the romance of multiculturalism because they have absolutely no idea whatsoever of all of those difficulties involved. I mean, you, if I recall correctly, um, you grew up in one country and then ended up in a different country, Correct.
0: I was born in Ireland. I grew up in England, uh, and uh, spent some time in South Africa, and then in Canada. And uh, so, yeah, I had a a bit of a tour of the colonies.
1: Right, and so you know, um, I grew up on the you know, I grew up in the Midwest, but um, from an East Coast family, and uh, you know, and then adding to all of that, you know, I was I, I was part Indian and part Mexican, living around a bunch of. Scandinavian blondes you know um and and so there's always a slight uh you know, there there are always very slight visible differences, you know nothing major but i um, but even just the way that you pronounce things you know my 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 parents used to uh, grin a little bit when we were talking about you know going to church in Edina, and I could never understand why why that was funny and and I said what's so funny about that? And my mother said, "Idaina, Idaina." I said, I don't get it. It's called Edina. They said, well, we all, we thought it was pronounced Edna when we first arrived. So it's, you know, it, you know, just little, little, very little small things like that when you're dealing with, um, different regions of the same country. But, uh, you know, then when I went to, um, when I went to study in Japan, you know, then you suddenly realize how different things are. You know, there's there's that horrible Apple ad going around now. You know, with the the people are all the same. That is this horrible. You know, very. T- I mean, you knew it was an Apple ad the minute that you heard this guy whining about how we are all different, my friend. But you know, um, but the, the, he says you know he concludes that but we are we are more alike than unalike, and that's not really true. I mean, not if you've lived in enough different places. You know, the first time I went to a Italian football game, just a, a soccer, a Italian soccer game, um, I, I was actually genuinely frightened because of the way that the players were screaming at each other and the referee. Um, I thought, as an American, that a major... Brawl was about to break out, right. you know. I mean, they—they they were screaming at the the, the the people in the crowd were screaming at the referee. You won't you won't make it home tonight, and and at one point, uh, somebody grabbed one of the players grabbed one of the other places players' faces, and I, I thought for sure the guy was going to punch him, and then everything all hell was going to break loose, and nothing happened. And what I gradually came to understand over time was that that's just how the Italians <laughs> yell at each other, you know. I mean, if, if it was English people yelling at each other like that or Americans yelling at each other like that, you know, you're talking practically World War Three. But, you know, it got to the point once I got used to it that uh, a, a Dutch teammate and I, we would sit there at midfield just chatting with each other while all the, all the Italians on both sides were screaming at each other over nothing, you know. Practically every game, the last... Five minutes was just people screaming at each other, and it's okay. Um, but, you know, that's, that's not what you would see at a, at a soccer game in Japan. It's not what you would see at a, at a, a soccer game in, in the United States. It's just a cultural difference, and it's just the way that they communicate, and that's okay. Um, but you can't put that, like you said, how do you put that together in the neighborhood barbecue? You don't. And that's why uh, Robert Putnam, I believe it was, that uh, released that big study. And, and the result shocked him when he realized that diversity was not only not our strength, but diversity was absolutely destroying community cohesion. And, and one of the reasons that the United States is crumbling, one of the reasons that it is in decline is because it is no longer homogenous. You know, it has become like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or Yugoslavia, it is now essentially a multi-ethnic empire, and so what is going to happen is what happens to all multi-ethnic empires, which is it is either going to break up or it is going to collapse. When? We don't know that will happen, but we can be very, very confident that it will happen because it's what happened to every other multi-ethnic empire before.
0: To, to go from the macro to the micro, uh, something sort of popped into my head, which uh, hopefully will encapsulate what, what it is that we're talking about. And yeah, the Putnam study, he sat on it for years because he just couldn't believe it. He didn't want to release it. And the the, the loss of social trust and social cohesion and neighborliness and all of that is, is really catastrophic. We are social animals. We are tribal animals. We need contact. You know, as it Aristotle said, that the only people who can live alone must be the gods or the beasts. But for human beings, we need the tribe. And whatever undoes the tribe, uh, undoes our humanity and undoes our empathy and turns, I think, into isolated couch surfers. But when I was a kid, I'm trying to think, maybe it's like eight or nine years old. I was, uh, uh walking down the street. Uh, we lived uh in an estate which sounds very Downton Abbey <laughs> but but wasn 't um uh, it was sort of an, an an area with sort of ringed by um roads and there were a couple of apartment buildings and so you know people kind of knew each other. we all sort of played in the same area so i 'm walking down the street and I uh, was kicking a little piece of glass that i 'd found, and then the glass spun over and then broke and you know because I was a kid, I was like, "Let me just <laughs> move off, <laughs> you know maybe I can slide away and, and all that and there was a, a woman there some one of, them, one of my friend's mom, she's like, yo, get back here. You have got to clean that up. You made glass on the road. You have to go and uh, clean that up. And, you know, long story short, you know, we figured out a way. We got some newspapers and you know, brushed it up and, and, you know, which was good. She did the right thing. I shouldn't be leaving glass on the road. And it, it was a good lesson in, um, you know, personal responsibility and not trying to slither away from a mess that you've made. And it was, it was a good thing. And I appreciated it, you know. Afterwards, you know, as these things is usually <laughs> the case. <laughs> Who are you to tell me? Oh, yeah, right. You're someone's mom. Now, the fact that we spoke the same language, the fact that there were the same expectations for children at, at an age appropriate level, uh, the fact that uh, we had the same cultural background, the fact that we had gone to the same churches, the fact all of this meant that there could be a social enforcement of rules outside the immediate family, and that is something that is really important. I mean, if um. I don't know, if I'd been some little Somali kid who didn't speak English, would she have had the opportunity to teach me about the wider application of social rules in a community? And, uh, you know, nothing pro or, or negative any ethnicity. These are just basic realities of not knowing what to do. And there's a great interview with, again, Tom Sowell. And the interviewer was talking about how he used to work for a media company, and um, they would, you know, park their van in the street, and they'd walk uh, up and down the Italian neighborhood, and the kids were all sort of pouring in and out of each other's houses, and uh, you know, they all had the same cultural references. They all knew how to say grace. It's another complicated thing, you know, go to somebody's house, and what are their religious perspectives? Uh, you don't. I mean, take me to a Shinto shrine. I'm sure I'm going to offend everyone, no matter what I do, because I don't have that particular experience, and the. These things which we we either had them, in which case we kind of take them for granted and think that they're more transferable than they really are, or we've never had them, in which case I don't think we really know what we've lost.
1: I don't think we know what we've lost, and I think that the differences are much deeper and more profound than most people are willing to recognize. You know, Mike Chernovich, uh, who is Absolutely slaughtering it on Twitter these days um, <laughs> i was all, I was all excited. I got to twenty thousand followers, and he's like, "Hey, congratulations! I just hit ninety <laughs> but um, anyhow, he was pointing out a study that that we'd been looking at, and it was really remarkable because ninety two percent of mixed race children with black fathers are born out of wedlock 92 percent 82 percent of them end up on welfare and what was really astonishing to me was that um only two percent of the mixed race children with a, a, a black father and a white mother are supported by the are financially supported by the father now you, you know, people, the automatic reaction of, of people in the states to that is probably going to be, "Oh, well, you know, it's poverty, the legacy of slavery, blah blah, blah." Well, that's not, that's not true. What it actually is it, is it is a normal African behavioral pattern. You know, um, we went to a church a few, uh, some years ago, and there was a, a reasonably sized Nigerian contingency. And one of the things that I, I thought was very strange was that you know the Italians and the expats would all sit together as families. And the Nigerians would come in, and whether they were married to uh, a Nigerian or, uh, or not married <laughs> to someone and had a kid with them or whatever, they didn't sit with them like the men would just kind of go off and do their own thing. And not even necessarily sit together with the men, but they just did not sit with their families. And I uh, I asked one of them about it and he just looked totally confused and said, "Well, you know, why would I? I don't live with them." I, I said, you, "You you don't live with your your, you know, wife and and child." And he said, "No. Yeah, you know, they they live with They live with their mother and, you know, he just does his own thing. And, you know, I I was kind of shocked at the time until I realized that that was actually their normal pattern. You know, and, you know, obviously, um, I don't think it works terribly well for them as a culture. Um, If, you know, if you look at the history of Nigeria and so forth. But the point is, is that that is a cultural norm on some level. That is totally foreign and is not very compatible with uh, the Western family structures and, in particular, uh, the United States uh, welfare system. And so, you know, that's not something that you're going. That's not something that you're going to fix simply by um, taking a diversity as our strength approach, because. It's never going to change. There's, it's, there's never going to be any sort of assimilation because the, the separate, diverse cultural patterns are, are being supported. Something else that comes up
0: a lot when discussions about the alt-right um, is the idea that to have an in-group preference is to believe that your group is superior. Now, it's not often put that way to non-white groups. Like, nobody says, oh, if you have a Jewish in-group preference, you must be a Jewish supremacist, or if you are a part of La Raza, you must be a Latino or Hispanic supremacist or something like that. But um, that is not the approach of the alt-right as far as I understand it, that there's no... Uh, question or or approach that any group or nation or race is superior to any other uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is equally compatible uh just and, and i you know this has been my approach for for years i sort of reluctantly have been dragged into uh, understanding that there are some significant differences between the races but uh, because i am staunchly scientific none of this has to do with superiority or inferiority you know, just adaptation to local environments or circumstances or whatever and i wonder if you can sort of help people Deal with that, you know, Jack in the Box. I'm sure that is uh, popping up, maybe with a little Aryan salute in their mind uh, about whether there is such a thing as um, racial or or ethnic superiority uh, in the perceptions of the alt right.
1: What you're talking about is is what I would call the transnational element of the alt right, which is to say that um, everyone, every people, every nation has a right to exist, and they have a right to live. In their own homogeneous nation, in their own homogeneous culture, however they want, you know. So, um, you know. So we support the, you know, at least my uh, side of the alt right. We support the right of Israeli Zionists to live in their Jewish ethnostate. I think it's you know why shouldn't they? We support the right of Nigerians to live in, you know, whatever. Style they it is that they prefer the same for the Chinese, the same for the Japanese, but most importantly, same for the nations of the West. you know the nations of the West have the right to live as they prefer, and they have the right to live amongst themselves, not invaded by every other every other nation and um, the, the The other area that i would I would slightly push back on you is that you know because the alt right is um at its core a western movement and so we do believe in the superiority of western civilization but that superiority is not an objective claim it's a subjective claim we prefer it because it's our culture we prefer it because it's what we know and so um you know i've i'm familiar with japanese culture i you know i used to speak japanese pretty well I have tremendous respect for Japanese civilization. I, th- I think I think now that Umberto Eco has died, Haruki Murakami is probably the greatest living writer out there. But, um, I prefer Western civilization. I just do. You know, when I got back from Japan, I was tempted to kiss the ground. I was so happy to <laughs> be home. But, um, but the fact that that we prefer it, the fact the fact that we consider it to be superior to to be superior to all other civilizations and cultures does not mean that we are making an objective claim for its superiority or that we are saying that, you know, there's any reason why, you know, the Chinese should not be able to live with their, you know, grand history, uh, you know, and, and great culture that they've developed over, you know, thousands and thousands of years.
0: The phrase white genocide, I think, was used, uh, it was a username, I think, that uh, Hillary Clinton quoted in her um, anti-alt-right speech. And for a lot of people, um, and I remember when I first read about it, it seemed quite startling. I wonder if you can help people understand what the phrase means. Or I know that there's a bunch of different meanings, but what it means to you?
1: Well, personally, I mean, it's kind of funny that you should ask me because, um, you know, I've criticized it as rhetoric. Um, because it's not rhetoric; it's it's dialectic being used in a rhetorical sense. So I always I I tend to find that less than entirely effective. But you know your reaction actually tends to indicate that I'm wrong. Um, it, you know, white genocide indicates that, uh, um, according to the official definition of genocide uh, put forth by the United Nations, um, the white nations are currently undergoing. A genocidal attack through the invasion of their homelands and through the um, intentional uh, the intentional replacement of them in their native lands and you know th- this is backed by a tremendous amount of of evidence. I mean, there's a, there's the the Kohagi plan, I think, which is dates back to the early 20th century. Um, there's a Jewish woman living in Sweden who's a professor. Uh, there's a, a whole bunch of academics that you can see that talk about the desirability of the extinction of the white race. Um, you know, this is not crazy white supremacists making stuff up. You know, these are well-documented, um, well-referenced uh, statements and, and projects um, that are conceived to um, weaken the influence of white people throughout the world and in some cases actually um, to exterminate the white race through interbreeding. And so um, it, it is a legitimate issue and um, the fact that, that someone like Hillary Clinton should attempt to minimize it or ridicule it uh, is absolutely absurd. And so the, the problem is, the, the problem with it rhetorically, of course, is that when, when most people think of genocide, they think about the Holocaust. You know, so when they look at the, the, the concept of white genocide, they say, well, how is that possible? Where are the stacks of bodies? You know, they could understand that they're, they can understand, you know, what happened in China uh, during the Great Leap Forward They can understand that that was genocide. They can understand that what happened in in Turkey to the Armenians, that was genocide. But but how is uh, you know nobody nobody is slaughtering you know white people in industrial quantities anywhere. So how can it be genocide? But the fact is that um, you know if we were to go to if we were to send um, you know a million or whatever if we were to send you know ten million Chinese people. Into a small country like Denmark, um, and forcibly interbreed them with all of the Danes uh, for several generations, and keep sending Chinese in. You know, within uh, you know within a, a certain period of time, there would be no more Danish people. That would be a genocidal act. I mean, um, you know, the Orthodox Jews worry all the time about excessive assimilation. You know They're afraid of... Uh, it, I mean, you can see lots of um, articles all the time about, uh, you know, is America dangerous to the Jews? Not in the Nazi sense, but in the overly friendly sense, um, you know, where, uh, like Ivana Trump, um, yes, she converted to Judaism, but at the end of the day, genetically, you know, her, her kids... In fact, if you look at how... Italian the uh, Ashkenazi Jews are, um, you know her kids are probably less than 20 percent Jewish in the actual genetic sense. and so um, so the, the white genocide term is an abstract term referring to the ongoing invasion of white native lands um, and the attempts to uh, dilute the white genetics by. Uh, encouraging them to uh, interbreed with people of other races, and of course you know you see this on like we talked about you see this on practically every commercial you you see on television so
0: yeah I just wanted to differentiate it the you said with the uh, example of the you know ten million people uh, ten million Chinese that, that was forced into breeding, the encouragement of interbreeding is a bit of a different moral category
1: oh yeah I mean I mean I like I said I, i've I've criticized. Uh, the heavy reliance on the use of the term simply because I think it is too abstract a term for people to understand. Um, It it is, uh, it does fit the legal definition of genocide, but it's a very soft form of it. And because it's a soft form of it taking place over a long period of time, that's something that the average individual is not really able to recognize or understand is taking place.
0: Well, then it's, Interesting to me, one of the the cha- and I do find this this whole line of of thinking very challenging. Uh, so you know, bear with me as I <laughs> hack my way through the undergrowth of of the language. But one of the things, and I know I almost hesitate to use the obvious polar bear example, but um, when there is uh, a decrease in in the birth rate in in a particular species to the point where the numbers of that species decline precipitously, then, you know, oh, oh, no, the spotted owl is, you know, the polar bear, Over there. we're running out, the, 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 the population is in decline. And uh, it certainly seems to be the case, uh, if you compare sort of the birth rates of whites uh, in, in Europe, uh, and uh, in, in North America, m- more so in Europe, the, the birth rate for whites uh, compared to the baby boom in the post Second World War period is down by what? Five hundred percent, four hundred percent depends on sort of where you count, and but you know from sort of four to five kids, it's like one to two. Uh, that's a huge drop off in the birth rate, and that is going to result in a significant population decline. But when it happens to polar bears, it's a catastrophe. If it's happening to white people, it's progress. So that that you know is is one of these things. is a little challenging to unravel, at least from the outside of this uh, intellectual approach.
1: Well, where you realize that it's not just um you know, some sort of coincidence or something, is when you look at the fact that um, back in the 70s when the country was considerably more white um, and the population was much smaller, they used to talk about overpopulation all the time. Mm. How often do you hear them talking about overpopulation as millions of immigrants are flooding in? You know, you never hear them talking about overpopulation in Nigeria despite the fact that that country cannot feed itself and is is projected to have over 400 million uh, residents, 400 million people living in Nigeria by 2050. Um, you know there, there are massive massive human catastrophes that are just waiting to happen. and yet they don't want to talk about, you know the idea that there might be overpopulation in Africa is never discussed. They're, they're worrying about overpopulation in countries like Germany where the birth rate is well below the replacement rate. And so that's when you start to realize that, okay, this is not about a genuine concern for too many people living on the planet. You know, there's something else going on here. There's there's definitely an anti-European agenda at work.
0: Well, not to mention, of course, the fact that um, when you take people from the third world and put them in the first world, their resource consumption and environmental footprint and impact and carbon impacts and so on, go up many, many, many times. But there doesn't seem to be exactly. any particular discussion of the environmental impacts of moving people and giving them first world consumption
1: standards. Well, we know why that is. And we, it's because I, I believe it was, it might have even been David Geffen, but uh, someone promised the leading environmental um, organization in the United States a million dollars as long as they would drop their opposition to immigration. And yeah. so which they then did. And that's why you never hear environmental groups uh, talk about the, the environmental impact of immigration because they've been paid off to not talk about it. And so,
0: so th- there's another term, which I find um, hard to parse, uh, which is the term globalism. Uh, and uh, I know that Donald Trump referenced it to reject the siren song of globalism and so on. And it's been talked about by some of the other presidential candidates, what do it mean brother i do not know (laughs) what does it mean
1: well there's multiple levels of it um and you know one of these days we're going to have to get into the whole religion atheism thing because i think a lot of people would love to see the two of us discuss it but um on the economic level your globalism essentially means uh international corporatism you know you've got these corporations that that uh, immense corporations, they act on a global level, they have no loyalty to any nation, they have no uh, interest in benefiting, uh, they just have no concept of belonging to, to any nation. And that's, the, that's what I would consider to be the economic level of globalism. Um, then you have the political aspect of globalism, which is the idea of converting the United Nations into a one-world government. And that's been the dream of people for, you know, who knows how long. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, it seemed like every other cartoon involved the bad guy trying to destroy the U.N. Um, I, I didn't realize until I, I got much older that the U.N. are actually the bad guys. Um, but uh, and, and the thing is, it's just logical if you think about it. I mean, you've got all sorts of... You know power hungry sociopaths around the world so let's take all the global power and concentrate it in one place so we have a winner takes all for the biggest sociopaths and most power hungry people on the planet all grabbing at the same brass ring <laughs> i mean you know it's kind of obvious how that's going to end up but um so that's the, the political angle. And, and what we're seeing that is we're seeing it take place on a regional level. So you've got the European Union is is the most advanced form of it. But then you've also got, you know, the various, um, you know, Asian economic um, treaties. You've got uh, things like, um, you know, NAFTA, which is was intended to bring Canada and Mexico together. Um, and, 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 of course, that's part of what we're – what the – is behind the mass immigration that's been taking place because, of course, um, it's a lot easier to institute those those political entities together when um, you know when you've got 30 million Mexicans already living in the United States. You know, well, why not just just merge the two as long as we're all here? Um, and then, you know, if you don't mind my getting a little bit um, getting a little bit strange. Um, there's also the spiritual component, and the a, a lot of the uh, global elite um, subscribes to a, a form of religion that I I, I call neo-Babylonism. You know, it's it's the old dream of the Tower of Babel, the the old dream of all the nations becoming one again, and and there being one um, one humanity. You know, you see that all the time. You know. <laughs> Sorry, that's my dog. Um, you know, one world, one race, et cetera, et cetera, which is kind of funny because it sure sounds a lot like, you know, Ein Reich, Ein Volk, Ein Führer. But um, but the, the, the neo babylism is intentional. Like if you look at the, um, if you learn how to read architecture, you can look at the structure of the, um, oh gosh, which building is it? it I, I believe it's the EU headquarters in Brussels. And it is intentionally designed to look like the most famous medieval painting of the Tower of Babel. Mm. And so all of these things connect. The spiritual element, or if you prefer the religious element, um, the political element, and the economic element. And together they make up globalism. And globalism is fundamentally and intrinsically opposed to nationalism.
0: There is an interesting Dichotomy, at least from from my view uh, of of how we deal with different groups. There does seem to be, you know, we've, we've done I've done a lot of research in this. We've got presentations out about this. Um, if you look at uh, aggregates of uh, political perspectives of groups like Hispanics uh, or Latinos in the United States, yeah, they're for big government and they're for lower taxes, you know, thus producing all of the wonderful stability that we see <laughs> with these two opposing ideas uh, in, the, in the sort of Central America. And uh, blacks vote overwhelmingly Democrat and so on. And so uh, we could sort of go on and on, but there are um, characteristic or habitual behaviors within groups that are not compatible with the desires of other groups. So white males want smaller government and lower taxes, uh, and women often want larger government uh, and don't mind as many high taxes because, in general, it's a lot of the men who pay the taxes, and Hispanics want lower taxes and more government. And there are incompatibilities in general, and lots of exceptions at the individual level, but we're talking about a big perspective here. So groups do act uh, in ways that are relatively predictable, I mean, otherwise, there'd be no such thing as polling or political machinations around um, uh, uh, voting lines and so on. And, and, I mean, sorry, one other thing, the, the conservatives, traditional conservatives are always drawn into that. You find a way to appeal to the Latinos by doing what the leftists want you to do. And it's like, nah. so what, what they're saying is that there are voting blocks that have predictable patterns that are incompatible with other voting blocks, yet somehow... Diversity and multiculturalism is a unifying strength. These sort of two, like one reality, the other ideological, don't seem to mesh for me.
1: No, it, it's it's absolutely illogical. Um, it's totally incoherent, and it's obviously a lie. I mean, there, there's there's no strength to div- diversity at all. Um, it, it it destroys community. It, it it destroys even the the possibility of uh, community consensus and, and that's partly intentional you know we know in england that the main reason that the labor party opened the immigration flood grade, uh, floodgates you know we, we know from their own docu- documents and, and statements that the reason that they brought in all those immigrants was in order to reduce the uh, the political power of the conservatives now of course that backfired on them badly because the you know people uh, ended up fleeing the labor party. So you know, um, and so and the same thing is happening in the states. Uh, it was really interesting. Um, there's this uh, uh, state senator, uh, a Jewish woman. She'd been in in for twenty two terms, and she got beaten in the primary by a Somali. You know, so the very immigrants that that she encouraged uh, moving in, ended up taking her own job. And you're seeing the same thing happen in the British Labour Party now as the the British people are not only fleeing London physically, but they're fleeing the Labour Party because the Labour Party is being taken over by all of the Asians uh, that have been brought in into the party. And so um, what I think this tells us is that uh, leftists are actually even dumber than we thought, because uh, you would think they would have been able to do the math and figure out those consequences, but but they can't. And that's actually one advantage that the alt right has. In fact, I thought it was really interesting. the The usual left wing approach is to call right wingers stupid. You know, I'm I'm sure you've been called stupid thousands of times. I have too. Oh, that's, um,
0: that's one of the nicer phrases, but yes, it, it does. <laughs> I think it does float around like a little tiny moon around Jupiter, but yes.
1: <laughs> right. But what I thought was kind of fascinating was that um, the people that were writing about the alt-right and, and attempting to warn people about the alt-right especially, uh, kept talking about how intelligent and intellectual it is. And now, I, I don't think that they have any, you know, unless they are thinking that they're going to blow smoke up our asses in order to cripple the conservatives, um, which is a possibility, um, what that indicates to me is that they're actually concerned, that they, they're actually uh, genuinely concerned that we have an approach that they really don't have... Um, any legitimate means of countering, whether, it, you know, because they can call us all the names we want. I mean, how, how do you effectively call people names when they don't care? And and so um, it's been interesting to me to see the difference in the way that they've reacted to the alt-right compared to the way that they've historically attacked conservatives in the past.
0: A couple of more things to to sort of close off my sort of education in in the alt-right um a 12 the alt right doesn't care what you think of it yes i think we've got that one (laughs) down um (laughs) international free trade now of course i grew up as a free trader and um have heard all of the arguments for the benefits of uh, free trade so the alt-right as you've written rejects international free trade and the free movement of people's that free trade requires the benefits of international free trade within a country is not evidence for the benefits of international free trade. Uh, Step me through that as uh, somebody who grew up with all of the typical sort of uh, um, uh, Chicago school and Austrian school arguments for unfettered free trade, uh, interplanetary, if at all possible.
1: Well, first, let me point out that I grew up with those two. Um, Not only did I grow up with them, but my father had me reading Free to Choose when I was about 12. And uh i was actually reading some of uh, milton friedman's more technical work before the before i graduated from high school um, so uh, that's what happens when <laughs> that's what happens when you grow up with a, a dad who's an engineer from mit <laughs> you're like here son here's a paper from milton friedman you know, i was having to learn I was having to, I was having to learn the math just to be able to read it <laughs> it's ridiculous but my point is is that I am absolutely as deeply drenched in free trade uh, rhetoric and arguments uh, and and general culture as you are. And so possibly the biggest shock of my life, um, other than becoming a Christian, was probably the realization that there were major flaws in the free trade argument and you can even see a lot of this on my blog if you if you go to Vox Populi and click on free trade you can see a lot of these discussions taking place a few years ago and you know the the first it was a book by Ian Fletcher called free trade doesn't work that first really got me thinking about it because uh, he does a really good job of dissecting uh, david ricardo's free trade argument you know his comparative advantage argument and it was very clear from that that What worked to a certain extent in Ricardo's time would not work once capital and labor were able to move freely, because uh, comparative advantage requires that those things stay frozen in place. In fact, um, Ricardo's reliance on freezing other factors in order to prove his point um, is something that he did so regularly that Joseph Schumpeter ended up calling it the Ricardian vice, now, in that particular case of comparative advantage, Ricardo was not cheating because at the time, labor was not very mobile. Um, you know, so his, his, his customary tactic um, actually lined up with reality. But the problem is what made sense, more or less, um, several hundred years ago, no longer makes sense in light of the changes in technology and the, the mobility of labor now. And so I did a calculation... Because you, know, you, you often hear people talking about, um, uh, well, free trade works in the United States, so why wouldn't it work in a global, uh, in a global environment? Well, and the answer is labor mobility. You know, the reason that we're able to have a level of free trade in the United States is because uh, there's a labor mobility rate of about 3.2% per year. What that means is 3.2% of the, mo- of the, the U.S. labor force moves from state to state that year. Um, If you take that and you calculate that out on a a global level, what that would mean in the case of the United States is that by the time you turn 35, 50% of the, the people under that age in the United States would have to leave the United States in order to get work so you 're not going to have the benefit without the labor mobility, but the labor mobility requires completely destroying the country you know and that 's and of course, you can see why the free traders the, the corporate free traders um, gravitate towards globalism because they think that 's great hey, we don 't need these borders you know the whole world will be richer if you know your kid um, goes and gets a job and one kid gets a job in Nigeria and one kid gets a job in Mexico. And of course, you know, a sane parent says, I don't want that. I would like to be able to see my grandkids. I would like to be able to, you know, have them be a part of my culture. But the globalists, because um, the economic globalists only think in terms of of economic growth, you know, they don't care. Um, if you if if any of your readers are interested in learning more about this we had a really great debate at brainstorm um james miller who is a um a phd uh and a professor of economics at i believe george mason university um and you know he went he actually got his phd from the university of chicago and he also has a jd from stanford um so it was very interesting because I was obviously way out-credentialed. Um, you know, I'm a video game designer <laughs> who writes fantasy novels. But, um, but we had a debate, and it was interesting. He, he was gracious enough to concede that I had won the debate, that he did not have um, any answers for some of these issues with free trade. And what, what we ended up doing was publishing the debate together as a book um, called On the Question of Free Trade. And um, it's on Amazon. If, if people are interested, you know, they can check it out. But um, it really covers a lot of these, um, you know, both the, 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 the strong uh, arguments for free trade as well as the, um, the arguments that, that uh, the alt-right and, and myself in particular uh, have against it. And I think that it's becoming increasingly obvious as the negative effects of the free movement of people and labor mobility become more and more apparent to everyone, it's becoming more apparent that the whole concept of free trade really is um, functionally a non-starter in the modern world.
0: I also wonder the degree to which bad economic policies are propped up by the importation of cheap foreign goods.
1: Oh, I, I don't, I mean, that's, that's a whole other problem. I mean, I, I, I don't tend to focus, because that's an area that a lot of other people focus on, um, it, I didn't. I didn't see any. You know, I, I didn't see any point in bringing that up with someone like Professor Miller, who is you know perfectly capable of. of I mean, if we're going to get into you know statistics and, and equations and macroeconomics, he's going to he's going to smoke me every time. Um, but you know, I do think that there is a fundamental flaw in the idea that you know we're always better off with uh, cheap foreign goods than, than slightly more expensive stuff that we make at home. Um, one of the things that got me changed, that changed my mind about uh, the legitimacy of the free trade arguments is that uh, someone challenged me to critique Henry Hazlitt's free trade argument. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with his, uh, his um, you know, economics like in one lesson is his big, yes. uh, his big book. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great book. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, that was the first one that I, I handed to my kids to read. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. And uh, someone challenged me t- to see if I could find any errors in the free trade argument he presented. And I was somewhat surprised to find that I found 11 specific uh, confirmable flaws in the argument. And I think it was very surprising to a lot of people, in fact, a lot of people who read my blog reluctantly came over to the anti free trade side despite having been pretty strong free traders after reading that critique because you know it was new to me too it wasn't like i i had i expected to read it and and find no problems at all and to find 11 errors of the gravity that some of them were some of them were minor but um It just became very clear that this is not consistent with a strong internally coherent argument all right
0: well i i really really appreciate your time vox in in stepping me through some of the um more challenging convoluted and controversial aspects of the alt-right and of course you know just remember there's no particular leader uh this is a uh, one uh, of course knowledgeable man's perspective uh, and um uh, i really appreciate that i wanted to remind people of course that you can go to uh, the links below we'll put uh, vox populi and alpha game and of course um castella castella house publishing links below and uh, really really appreciate uh, your time it was always it's a great pleasure to chat
1: always enjoy it take care